Duran Hodgson has forged a career as one of our most entertaining actors, writers and comedians. He's won awards and accolades at Edinburgh for shows on the unlikely subjects of school French exchanges and British politics in the 1970s. Kieran explains to Michael Barclay how he found out about the Russian composer Alfred Schnitke. As a teenager, you played with a really good local orchestra in the Home Valley, and it was about this time, I think, you discovered the 20th century composer Alfred Schnitke. Yes. Um, in the orchestra, there were various professors who taught music at nearby Huddersfield University, one of whom was called uh, Julia. And she had said to me, I think you would like Schnitke. And she was absolutely right. And I love Schnitke for the phantasmagorical aspects of his music. But none of us is ever really just one thing. And that is summed up by the choice I've made today, which is of his choir concerto, which is really not very characteristic at all of Alfred Schnitke's usual idiom. Um, but it has this cosmic focus and depth to it and this amazing harmonic crunching to me that's almost like galaxies folding in on one another and then it just breathes out into these amens uh, in this concluding movement and um, I think it's stunning. It was composed in the 1980s when Schnitke was banned from leaving the Soviet Union and it sets words from the Book of Lamentations by the 10th century Armenian monk Gregory of Narek. It's a deeply spiritual work which reflects Schnitke's turn towards Christianity as well as Russian orthodox chant. Uh, do you love those influences as, as they come into it, the, the sort of Russian sound? I certainly do, and I couldn't quite believe the first time I bought the CD and put it on my stereo the total lack of accompaniment because having been in a few choirs myself, admittedly amateur ones, I had a sense of how difficult and complex the harmonic language is within this music. And to do that without any support from an organ or an orchestra is breathtaking. And then a friend of mine said, oh yeah, all Russian Orthodox music's like that. And um, that astounded me and I was yeah um, in awe of this music even more.
The last movement of the Choir Concerto by Alfred Schnitka, with Valery Polyansky conducting the Soviet Union Ministry of Culture Chamber Choir. I see, Kieran Hodgson, exactly what you mean. That's not an easy piece to pitch, is it, without any accompaniment? It's when you see, for example, the alto parts split into six different sub-parts. You think, oh, wow, this is, um, yes, on a, a, an astronomical plane, different from mine. <laughs> Were you already making people laugh? I mean, did, did that uh, possibility of being a comedian um, occur at this kind of stage? Yes, and the signs that uh, making people laugh would be a good career choice were far clearer than the signs uh, for becoming a composer. I entered and, dare I say, won the school talent show when I was 11 doing impressions. I did Tony Blair and William Haig and a very, very poor and inaccurate Charles Kennedy and everyone laughed, teachers and students alike, and I thought, OK, I might be able to continue doing this and I love doing this so yes that seemed uh, more sustainable. Lauren Laverne talked to poet and author Robert McFarlane about his love of nature and mountain landscapes. You can hear the full edition of Robert's Desert Islandists on BBC Sounds. Today we concentrate on the Christian aspects of his work particularly the influence of Celtic Christianity. My castaway this week is the author and teacher Robert McFarlane. One of Britain's foremost writers on nature, his books, including The Wild Places, The Old Ways and Landmarks, have won many prizes and taken root in the bestseller lists. They're also shaping the way readers of all ages feel about the world around us. His children's book, The Lost Words, with illustrations by Jackie Morris, became a phenomenon, highlighting the language that was disappearing from British childhoods, words like bluebell and conquer. His most recent work, Underland, is an epic subterranean history of everything from the catacombs of Paris to an English forest's 400-million-year-old network of fungi. Though his love of the natural world began at a considerably higher altitude, he grew up in a family of mountaineers and spent holidays exploring the Cairngorms, nurturing a fascination which inspired his breakthrough debut, Mountains of the Mind. He says, my heart is made of mountains and always will be. They were my first love and they will be the last. Robert McFarlane, welcome to Desert Island Discs. Hello, Lauren. Robert, you're sharing your discs with us today and your writing is actually often described as having a musical quality and you've written songs yourself, so I'm guessing that music is important to you. Yes, uh, I mean, it just flows through my life. I have no musical talent as a, an instrumentalist, as it were. I sing enthusiastically but badly, uh, a, bit, a bit like <laughs> I write poetry, really. But yes, it's crucial to me. I, I listen while I write, I listen in my memory while I walk and while I climb. Music's kept me company on the page and and in the mountains and on the paths so yeah all right well let's dive in disc number one then if you would it's nat king cole's version of nature boy I guess i am a bit of a nature boy but i i also think it's just utterly gorgeous that voice of his that famous voice of his and lyrically i think it's one of the most perfect songs i know it's about this you know sad boy who travels melancholy and bittersweet very far very far but he learns one thing the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return, and that seems to me an unforgettable truth. This he said to me 
hardest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Nature Boy by Nat King Cole. Robert, I know that you're not the biggest fan of the term nature writing, but there is an artistic tradition that, that you're part of and it's booming at the moment. There's a vicarious joy, I think, in experiencing nature through language, through media. But nature writing, if we want to call it that, has been happening in this island group for well over a thousand years. Some of the most extraordinary nature writing I know is early Celtic Christian devotional monastic writing kind of field notes, these field notes from islands and headlands where monks had gone in search of eternity and divinity and found them in birdsong and wave and shoreline. They're utterly beautiful. They ring so clearly across 1,400 years. I think we better hear your next disc. It arises from this. It's not the wildwood of the lost words, but it's the birds that flew from the topmost branches of the wildwood. It's a song called The Blessing that was written by... Some extraordinary musicians that Jackie and I came to work with and they produced a set of spell songs and they were very free adaptations often and The Blessing is the last of those. It takes its inspiration from the Gaelic naming or psalmic tradition of, of praise songs and I last heard it played under the Blue Whale skeleton in the Hintzy Hall in the Natural History Museum just a few weeks ago and it, it reduced me to floods of tears. I think a, a year of intense self-control leaving the body something about fragility and beauty and nature's presence for us all but anyway i'll let i'll let your ears decide let your names take a root and thrive and grow and even as you journey on past dying stars exploding like the gilded one in flight Leave your little gifts of light And in the dead of night, my darling Find the gleaming eyes, starling Like the little aviator Sing your heart to all dark matter The Lost Words, The Blessing by the Spell Songs Musicians so it's time to send you away to the island, Rob. You can take a few things with you. Firstly, the books. I'm giving you the Bible, the complete works of Shakespeare, and you can take one other. What would you like? I would like to take the complete works of Gerard Manley Hopkins, the, the Jesuit poet, 19th century poet. And when I say the complete works, I mean the, the poems and his journals and letters because they are springful of life and eye-sharpening vision and detail. Do they exist as a book already? Yes, maybe. I mean, they, we could maybe stick a couple of books together. Um, oh, we've got to be a real book. Uh, OK, well, in which case, the poems in the journal, yeah.
Kenneth Stephen grew up in Perthshire, but spent many of his holidays on Iona. Today he reads his poem describing the open-topped ferry, which used to cross from Mull to Iona in the 1970s. He follows that with a poem lamenting the loss of the Gallic language of Iona. Iona Ferry It's the smell I remember, the dizziness of diesel, tarry rope, wood sheened like toffee. The sea was waving in the wind and dancing. I wanted it to be rough, and yet I didn't. My mother and I snugged under the awning to a dark rocking. We were as low as the waves, all of us packed in tight like bales of wool. The engine roared alive. Its tremor juddered through the wood and thrilled me, beat my heart. The shore began fading behind the white curl of our hung. Fourteen days lay barefoot on the island, still asleep, their eyes all shut. And yet I knew them all already, felt them in my pocket like polished stones, their orchids, their hurt white sand, their lark song. I think it starts with this business of landscape um, and, and an abiding sense of the creator and, and, and the impossibility of all this having happened by, by blind chance, by accident. It begins really for me with, with that. A sense that no matter how much science may explain explain existence I think the, the, the deeper my faith goes because the more complex the world becomes in a sense the more amazing it becomes I composed this poem after I heard after hearing that the, the last Gaelic speaker out on the island of Iona had, had died, had passed away I was really remembering the fact that my father uh, was out on Iona in the 1930s, the 1940s, and found it difficult to communicate with anyone because the population was first and foremost Gaelic-speaking, and how, in the course of a generation, two generations, the language that had been there for millennia had disappeared entirely. The Long Silence On Iona, the last Gaelic speaker has died. Last winter, when the gales battled each roof and window, he was blown out and into the wind. Once upon a time he was a tall man, leaning at the porch of his weaver's cottage, his eyes like pools of the sea. Now in the summer, when the tourists come, you will hear the languages fast and loud, but never a word of Gaelic there. All over the western islands... The last ones are going like candles tonight, falling across the wind, their last words drowned and lost in time. But everyone is talking, busy talking. The radios and televisions are loud all night, and no one is listening to the long silence. Mary Haddo was Minister of Pitlockery Church of Scotland until last Easter. During lockdown, Mary recorded her sermon outdoors in her garden. Today, 
Mary looks at what we can learn from space exploration. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are words that many in the Christian faith pray every day. And what we are praying for is that the kingdom of God may be expanded from heaven to earth, that his will be done here just as it's done there. These words seem to leap out at me over this past week or so, triggered, I think, by events that had many looking to the heavens. You see, over the past couple of weeks, two billionaires who have funded the development of space planes that could open up tourism flights to the edge of space made their inaugural flights. Richard Branson was first and said of the flight that it was the experience of a lifetime. Branson and his two pilots and three employees returned to Earth just over an hour after leaving the ground. He also commented, I've had my notebook with me and I've written down 30 or 40 little things that will make the experience for the next person who goes up to space with us that much better. And it's been reported that so far about 600 people have paid his company, Virgin Galactic, deposits for tickets that will cost them up to £180,000 each, allowing them to experience five minutes of weightlessness. The second was Jeff Bezos. He called it the best day ever after landing back on Earth, having completed the 10-minute or so trip to space and back. One of his fellow passengers, 82-year-old Wally Funk, told reporters that she wasn't able to see the whole Earth out the windows as she had hoped, but felt it was still a great experience. It's estimated that Bezos' company, Blue Origin, has approached about $100 million in private ticket sales already. Branson and Bezos are part of what could be classified as a modern commercial space race, which up to now has been dominated by Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. Now, I'm not touting for business for them, and I'm not criticising their endeavours or entrepreneurial mindset. Many did that on social media. Nor am I decrying those who want to experience this kind of thing or commenting or ca- on carbon footprints. Rather, I mention it because I was struck by how hard it was to find in all the reporting and quotes something that made me stop and marvel at any sense of awe they experienced. On the whole, it, it just seemed to be about personal experience and, and commerce. It seemed so unlike astronaut James Irwin, who, as he stood upon the moon's surface and looked at the Earth, said he was struck by its size and its beauty. He said, I was just amazed to see the Earth. It reminded me of a Christmas tree ornament, a very fragile one, hanging majestically in space. It was very touching to see the Earth from that perspective. During Irwin's time in space, he said he thought about the strife among nations of poverty, hunger and injustice. In the interviews he gave when he returned to Earth, he frequently spoke about how his experiences in space had made God more real to him than before. And he spent the last 20 years of his life as a goodwill ambassador for the Prince of Peace, stating that Jesus walking on the Earth 
is more important than man walking on the moon. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer has shaped the lives of Jesus' followers ever since Jesus first taught it to his disciples. Rooted in Jesus' relationship to the Father, the prayer encompasses so much. Everything from highlighting our relationship to as children of God, inviting us to recognise the holiness of God, acknowledging his kingdom, recognising that our daily needs can be met through him, asking that we would be accepted and acceptable to him and reflecting that acceptance to others, striving to follow his way. In all this, we are praying for God's presence, not only in our own lives, but also in our world, in the here and now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs>